Thank you for listening to the Redeemer podcast. Redeemer exists to make the gospel of Jesus known in our city, region, and world. Subscribe to the Redeemer podcast to not only access our weekly sermons, but also select special talks and lectures by myself and our guest speakers. If you want to know more about Redeemer and how you can be a part of what God is doing through our church, go to www.redeemerbible.ca. Thank you, and we hope that you're blessed by what you're about to hear. Carrying on in the book of Nahum, and we're into verses 9 to 15 of the first chapter. So just those six verses, so I will read them for you. What do you plot against the Lord? He will make a complete end. Trouble will not rise up a second time. For they are like entangled thorns, like drunkards as they drink. They are consumed like stubble, fully dried. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord, a worthless counselor. Thus says the Lord, though they are at full strength and many, they will be cut down and pass away. Though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no, afflict you no more. And now I will break his yoke from off you and, you, and burst, sorry, will burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given commandments about you. No more shall your name be perpetuated. From the house of your gods, I will cut off the carved image and the metal image. I will make your grave, for you are vile. Behold, upon the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who publishes peace. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows, for never again shall the worthless pass through you. He is utterly cut off. Okay, book of Nahum. So, last week, so the very first eight verses of this book are focused on, it was a hymn, remember, it's a hymn. Nahum begins with a, a description of who God is. And here from verse 9 to 15, he shifts and moves from talking about who God is to what God will do. And that's what these verses are. And it's very straightforward on the surface. It's very clear what he's going to do. He's going to judge and destroy Assyria. Remember, Assyria is at this point not only dominated Israel, the northern kingdom, but they essentially have turned Judah and Jerusalem into a vassal state that is effectively effectively Assyrian, even though they're not. And the question, you know, you could just look at this and say, well, it's just history. It's telling you history, and it's just talking about how angry God is. There's actually something far deeper going on, as you may see in the title here, that the question we should be asking is not just dwelling it on, 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 on a historical basis, but saying, how did Judah and how did Assyria come to be in the position they're in? How did Assyria come to be in a place of opposition to God? And how did Judah come to a place of falling asleep and nearing opposition to God? And then what's God, what God's going to do, what is he going to do about it? And when we look at that, you see that the biggest problem is imagination. And it may sound strange, but I'll, you'll have to journey with me for the next few minutes. Because although this is, it sounds like a story about the political and, and military emancipation of Israel from Assyria's grasp, it's actually, that is part of it, of course, but what's deeper and what's happening underneath the surface is their, um, the, the emancipation of their imagination. That their imagination is being freed from the culture, from Assyrian, and from sinful control. And you'll see how relevant I think this is for today as well as we go through it. So what we're going to see is we're going to see what happens when our imaginations are closed, when they're closing, and when they finally are opened. Okay? So bear with me. Here we go. First one, closed. What is imagination, first of all? When I say imagination, what are we even talking about? And it's very simple. It is the faculty or act of forming images not present to the senses. 
So let's do a little exercise. I'll ask you this simple question. Think about a loaf of bread. Okay? Just for one second, give it some thought. It shouldn't take you too long. <laughs> Hopefully you've seen bread. Now, depending on what you've thought up, it could be any number of these images or something like it, right? It could have been a loaf, it could have been in a bag, it could have been the sourdough, it could have been a, a bagel for our Jewish friends, right? It's bread. But here's one thing that is certain about the imagination. When you thought of that bread, you created something that doesn't actually exist. It doesn't matter if that slice of bread or that, that loaf is something you carved into earlier for breakfast. When you recreate something in your mind, you are creating something that does not exist. Even if you're remembering a memory from your wedding day or anything else, understand that moment is gone and no longer exists, and you have to recreate it in your brain. This is what we do with our brains. Now, that's all fine and good. And our imaginations are really strong, really powerful. We can imagine a lot of things but they're actually very limited as well. So for instance, you and I can only imagine things that already exist in some way. That may sound odd if you're a fan of Bill, you know, uh, uh, Steve Jobs and people with these big imaginations, but understand you can never imagine anything that doesn't already somehow exist. So for, I'll use an example. Try to imagine a new color. You can't. The only, the best you can do is say, it's kind of like blue, or it's like yellow, because you and I are finite. We can only imagine based on the material already around us. And so even if you have the greatest inventors in the world, they can only imagine based on the material they have to work with. If you're an engineer, you can't create a new material, generally, and you say, well, I did. I created something from combining these two elements, and it made a new material, but you used two existing elements. What you cannot do is what God can do. He can create ex nihilo, from nothing. And so all of our artists, as wonderful as they are, you're not actually like God sort of artist. You can only create from what you have. God, however, we're told, creates from nothing. He doesn't just recall something he's seen before and manipulate it and change it. He thinks up a brand new thing. He dreams up everything, all of you included. Now, here's what's going on when we think. First, you actualize something in your mind, and then what inevitably happens is you begin to actualize it in the world. And I'm not talking about the word of faith movement. Please don't think I would ever say that. You don't, you don't actualize your wealth by thinking about being wealthy. This isn't, I'm not Tony Robbins. That's, not, that's ridiculous. The Bible doesn't say that, but what it does say is your heart will determine your, your thoughts, and then those thoughts inevitably become your actions because that's what we are. So we actualize first in our brains, we dream up something, and then we try to set about creating that dream, that image, that ideal, or whatever it is in our, in our actual lives. And God does the same thing. He's dreamt you up, and then he actualized you in the material world. He's made you. So when God does this to us, he says, I'm going to make these images, and they're going to be like me. They're going to be imaginative. They're going to be able to create to an extent. And then he sets us in the world, in the Garden of Eden, let's say. Well, he did, but that's, let's go back in time. He sets humanity in this landscape that is rural. Okay? And then he says, now go and subdue it and cultivate it. But when you're subduing and cultivating, you must exercise the imagination. Because when it's an empty field, you have to imagine that a garden could be here. A road could be here. A school could be here. A family could be here. And so on. So first you actualize it here. And then you say, let me now put it into practice. 
Okay, everybody's trekking with me? Good. So the imagination, that's what we do with it. But then says the Bible, and listen, if you're not a Christian, I get it, but you have to account for why our imaginations are so rotten and why they get used for such bad things. And you don't have a way of doing it unless you're script biblical, unless you're looking at the Bible that says something occurs that begins to corrupt the imagination, and that's the fall. And you'll notice in the story of the fall in Genesis 3, what, is the, what does the serpent do? He does, I know we have, there's lots of things we could, it's such a complicated story, but he attacks the imagination. What is the first thing he says? Did God say? Now, what does Eve have to do with that statement? She has to actualize it. First, okay, what did God say again? See, now the imagination. She has to go back and recreate that moment when God gave instruction regarding good and evil in the tree. She then has to try to figure, okay, what did he say and how do I now live out that? What did he say? Did he say it? Was I paying attention? So the, the intellect, the imagination is attacked. Then he says after a more insidious thing, you know, if you t- eat that fruit, you'll be like God. Oh, then the heart gets tempted and the imagination flies, right? What would it be like to be like God? How could I, imagine what I could do. Remember Lord of the Rings? If I had the ring, imagine what I could do. Wouldn't it be awesome? And so you see what's happened. When the heart is tempted, it fires the, it fuels the intellect, the imagination. If the heart is, is impure, if the heart is from a bad place, the imagination is then utilized because the imagination does nothing on its own. It's a service department. It only does what it is, what it is told to do by the heart. So the heart says, now go and do, think up this, this, this thing, this dream, this plot, this way forward. And then you act and you implement it. And what does Eve do? Not just Eve, right? I'm blaming all of Adam's guilty, so don't, women, don't think I'm picking on you. But blame the Bible if you do think that. It says very clearly, first her heart, then her imagination, and then what does she do? Her eyes, it looked good to eat, and she takes it and eats it. And so you see the imagination, the way it works. The heart fuels the imagination, which inevitably leads to our actions. Okay? So, now, let's turn to Nahum for a second. In the Bible, there's, there's actually no word for imagination in Hebrew. There's no such thing. The word doesn't exist. But there are words that we translate as that because they're words that are, um, they refer to thinking up and dreaming up and scheming and plotting and creating nothing, something from nothing or to make something real. So we use these words, and in English, we translate them as imagine. And here in, in Nahum, in, in the very first verse, in verse 9, I'm going to show you four different tr- English translations for this one word, hashav. Hashav means to scheme, to plot, to, to think, to dream up something. So you see the four different translations. Here's the thing. You don't need to know Hebrew, but if you check a few different English translations, and these are usually good ones to check because they all have very different purposes for creating translations. Say so one's more literal, one's more uh, dynamic, etc. And so when you look at these, you realize when they all have a different word, it's because the Hebrew word is difficult to nail down in English. So they're, they're struggling. So what, is, what does the word really mean? Somewhere in between those, probably. And in this case, you notice it's imagined to plot, to devise, to scheme. And these words are the use of the imagination. That's what we do with our imaginations. We plot a way forward. That's literally actually what it is. Imagining is plotting a new course from a present reality. I am at point A, and I have to get to point B. I'm not there yet, so I have to determine, how am I going to get there? You have to imagine a course. And you see this in, we do it all the time. And famously, there's people who have done it, like JFK. Everybody remembers, well, if you're alive, early 60s, when he says, we'll put a man on the moon by the end of the decade. See what he's doing. He's taking a current reality he had with the space program in America, 
And he says, within a decade, we're going to do this. This is the, his imagination. I take what is real, and I plot away to another reality that may not exist, but it will, because I'm going to actualize it. Another one might be um, Bill Gates. This is why he's one of the richest men in the world. He makes this comment saying, one day there'll be a computer in every home and on every desk. People laughed at him. I've got like 20 computers at home. Like, he's, this is it. He, again, he takes a present reality, he dreams up, he plots a way forward, and there's a thing. And I'm not claiming is there good or bad schemes here. Just the, just the reality. That's what we do. And what... But then let's turn to Nineveh. Actually, let me use an example of this, the good and the bad here for the imagination we see in Scripture. We see both aspects of how we use this and how we plot for good and evil with uh, David. So David, as a young man, sees Goliath. What does his imagination do? Because God is the source at that point of his imagination, he says, there's a way. There's a way to defeat this enemy. There's a way that Israel can be free from the Philistines. All of this. And he plots a way forward because God is at the root. And his imagination is good. But years later, he'll be standing on his roof, and he'll see a woman on another roof. And his imagination will not lead him very well. Because his imagination won't say, that is another man's wife, that is, I have everything, why should I ask for more? If I did, why don't I ask God? Why should I take from, from Uriah? He doesn't say that. Instead, his imagination, fueled by a rotten source in his heart at that point, leads him to go take another man's wife and murder him. And so here we have the human imagination that is captive to our sin. So now if we turn to Nahum, what is going on here? Nahum is speaking. Here's an interesting fact. If you're on Tuesday, you, you know this. But in, in your Bibles, it may, if you have an NIV, for instance, it may say in verse uh, 11, from you came one, and it may say, one, uh, from you, Nineveh came one. And it adds Nineveh in there. That word doesn't exist in the Hebrew. The NIV will stick it in there so that you know the you is Nineveh. It's Assyria. Now, that's fair. It is Assyria, but that's not what's there. It's not in the Hebrew. They just add that to help you understand it. But what is interesting is, he, is Nahum and God points out a single person here. From you came one who plotted evil against the Lord. Well, who is this person? And we don't know because he never says. So, and in some ways, that's good. That means you can read this generation after generation, and it can be the evil guy, the one who comes out of any situation. It's generic. But probably who he's referring to here, most scholars would say, is a king named Sennacherib. So Sennacherib, um, if you don't know, I mentioned him last week a little, a Syrian king who in 701 BC encircles Jerusalem. And it's in Isaiah 6, 36 and 39 is where the story is told. Him and his, his generals go and encircle Jerusalem. And I've got to be honest, it's one of the most fascinating bits of, of the Bible to read. Because as you read it, it has this wonderful dialogue back and forth between the Assyrian general on the ground and the king and the soldiers of Israel on the wall. And at one point, the, the, the Israelites are like, hey, don't talk in the common language because our soldiers, we, I don't want our soldiers to get afraid because the Syrians are really rattling their sabers. And, Sennach and Sennacherib's uh, general says, no, I'm going to say it. And when we read this, you begin to see the imagination of Assyria. Okay? Now watch what he says in this one passage in chapter 36 of Isaiah. He's talking to the soldiers on the wall. Beware, lest Hezekiah, the Judean king, mislead you by saying the Lord will deliver us. Has any of the gods of the nations delivered his land out of the hand of the, Assyri of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? And where are the gods of Sepharvaim? Have they, have they delivered Samaria out of my hand? Who among all the gods of these lands have delivered their lands out of my hand? 
that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hands. See, this goes on. Now, what is the worldview? What is the imagination? Because remember, the world that we see, you and I have created. This world that now exists was one humanity has dreamt up and created. We have exactly what we want. Like it or not. You don't like this world? You're to blame. You think your younger generations are undisciplined and not working hard? You're to blame. We have that world. We actualize the world we want. What is the world that Assyria wants? And what is the world they believe exists? They see a world that there is no God that they can't destroy. That's what he literally says. There's no God who can save you. Because this world is not governed by gods, says the Assyrians. Despite the fact that they're very religious. Their world is governed by power. This is a world, they say, and they say it and they show it by their actions. This is a world that, like what, say what you want, it is governed by whoever is stronger, takes what is theirs. And God has no place in this world of Assyria. And by doing this, by closing their imagination and saying the world is such that there is no God in it who can resist or dictate what happens, I am master of my fate, captain of my soul, to quote that horribly heretical poem that's very popular. That, that stance, that, that posture of Assyria is the posture that comes with an imagination that is closed to God. And when you believe that you exist in a world that there is no God in, certainly no God that is sovereign over you, what you're going to do is create a world where God is not in it. And I'm not going to get on my hobby horse because I don't have this hobby horse particularly, but what you will do is you'll create a world where God has no place in your politics, no place in your workplace, no place in your heart, no place in your schools, no place in your play, no place in how you spend your money or what you do with your internet use. You'll create a world like that. And when you do it, you get a very clear description of what happens when your imagination is closed to God and open to your own desire. What happens in verse 10 is you become thorns, drink, and stubble. Now, when he says this, those things are not bad in themselves. Thorns, alcohol, these things are not evil, despite what some denominations will say. Right? They're not evil, and stubble is not evil, but we see what, what, what Nahum is saying. In these things, they are not evil in themselves, but within them they bear the seed of their own destruction, because thorns left to, left to go on will become tangles. Drink left unwatched will become drunkenness. Stubble left unwatched becomes, what are we seeing here in Canada? Fire. Fire everywhere. And so what Nahum is saying is, because you have plotted evil, because you've imagined the world to be devoid of God, you've set a course that is contrary to him. Everyone who does not believe in the God of the Bible is against him. Now, that sounds harsh, and this is why. You may not know it. You may not give one thought to the God of the Bible. That's the point. Because God has a good plan for the world, and because you are not supporting it, you're necessarily against it. And this is what will happen. If you don't change, you will become entangled in your imagination. You'll become drunk by your imagination. And eventually, you'll be destroyed by your imagination. And this, it's terrifying. It's not pleasant. But that is how the mind gets closed, by imagining a world without God. But then, how do we get to closing? So, we know if the mind of the Assyrians is closed to God, Judah is closing they're on their way. They're not far away from having an Assyrian mindset. And Nahum doesn't cover this directly. What you need to do here is read Kings, read Chronicles. And you begin to see that at this time, they have a series of Judean kings that are adopting Assyrian culture, slowly but surely. And there's two things that lead, and this is good for us as a church and for Christians to know. 
what leads to our imaginations being shut off from God, and all of ours has been, is, well, a lot of things, but two things is all I'll say. Our culture and our values, and they're connected. So the culture comes, and I couldn't find the quote. I was trying, I know I read it, and I just couldn't find it anywhere, because I read it so long ago. It's by, uh, sorry, it's an obscure French philosopher named Michael Foucault, right? Michael Foucault. If that doesn't look like a philosopher, I don't know who does, by the way. That's a, that's a philosopher. So Foucault makes this comment, and he's not a Christian, but he makes this comment that's very poignant. He says, you know, the human imagination is capable of transcending its reality, but it very rarely does. And what he means is this, that all of, the reason he says you can't, by the way, is he says because we forget that our imaginations aren't independent of our culture, but are made by the culture. So what he means is, if culture, and listen, we do it, Canadian media and our newspapers are all trying to say we're heading in this direction, we're all fish in one stream going in this direction. And because you and I are in that stream, although you may have a great imagination, remember, you can only create from what you know. So it's very difficult for us. We may, what you see the imagination do when you're all swimming in the straight, same straight line is the imagination is found on how do we find a new way of going straight. But very few people, says Foucault, say, go the other direction because it's incredibly difficult to disagree with the culture. And most Christians think they are countercultural. You're not. You're just agreeing with the Christian culture that sounds a lot like the culture of the world, but has a cross on it. And so the imagination, this is exactly what we found in the book of Judges, and we're finding now. The longer Israel lived among the Assyrians, the more they began to live like the Assyrians. And it happens so subtly. So subtly, I watch how we all interact with people online, and we do it just like the world, but we quote scripture instead of swearing at them. I see how we spend our money. It's no different. We don't divorce at any smaller rate than the world. We are the culture. I use the example often. It doesn't matter how, what you're talking about at Starbucks. If you're talking about Jesus the whole time, very pious, and you're praying for the lost, you come out of Starbucks smelling like coffee because you're in the coffee all the time. And in this culture, it is so difficult to be in the world without being of the world, which is why you see so many uh, urgings from God and from Christ even to saying, don't be careful. And so Israel finds itself falling asleep in the Assyrian culture. That's the first thing. The second thing, and it's connected, is that our values are more socially derived than we would dare dream. And I'll explain what I mean by this. Um, Has anybody heard of something called the halo effect? So the halo effect is this, and I'll explain it with some examples. The tendency for an impression created in one area to influence opinion in another area. Simple way is this. When you and I see a very very, uh, attractive person, you, like it or not, man or woman, you assume the attractive person is nice, successful, right, and not a criminal. If you see somebody who is dressed poorly and looks a little scruffy, you naturally think they're less successful, more likely to be a criminal. And this is the halo effect, the idea of because of one impression, a good-looking guy or woman, we assume other other good things about them, and we necessarily overlook sins. That's what we do. It's human. We all do it. And you see it again, for instance, in, um, oh boy, so many different ways. How about how we see um, uh, Christian politicians? So not even Christian, politician. A politician comes and he or she agrees with our stance on, oh, I don't know, abortion. Abortion's bad. The politician is clear on that. You will then defend that person. And you will assume because they're with you on that one, 
that you necessarily have to defend them for their sins that they are terrible. So you may have a politician who is a very successful businessman or woman, and you think, because they're successful in business, they're necessarily a good politician. Is that true? No. But do we think it? Yes, that's why we're electing celebrities as our politicians, because we're foolish, to be honest. And this is the halo effect. And the reason that this is important, what's happening here for Israel in Assyria, is when we see success, we assume it's right. And so what happens, and you see it happening in the books of Kings, Israel says, listen, our piety and our commitment to God has gotten us beaten and enslaved. The Assyrians... They're living perfectly. You see what God says, though they are at full strength, he says. What he means is, though, they, though, Israel, uh, though Assyria looks to you like they're untouched and perfect, I'm going to shear them. The word cut them down is a word for shearing a sheep. Don't worry. I know they look good, but I'm going to cut them down. The looks are deceiving. But we don't. We say, gosh, yes, okay, they're brutal, but they're on top. They must know how to, work, they must know how to win at this thing called life. Successful billionaires, Elon Musk's of the world, the Zuckerberg's of the world. Gosh, let's follow them for business advice because they know how to make money. They must know what they're doing, right? And we do it all the time. And, Assyria, and Israel was doing this to Assyria. So swimming in the Assyrian culture and then seeing Assyria's seeming success, they begin to slip and fall and say, this is better. It's a better way. Our piety has got us nothing. Surely it's better to be like, Israel, like Assyria than to be this way. So they're slipping bit by bit. So we see the mind closed as the enemies of God. How easy it is for ours to close. And now we ask, how is it that God is rousing them? And it's as beautiful as it should be. The very last verse of this chapter, verse 15. Do I have it up there, verse 15 on the screen? I don't even know if I do. Yes, well, he starts here. Nahum quotes, you all have heard this, right? You've heard this before. Nahum is quoting Isaiah, but he doesn't quote him perfectly. God is, in Isaiah... The, the verse starts, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet of those who, them who brings good news. You know that. If you're a Christian, you've heard it a lot. What I, but, but look at what Nahum does. He doesn't quote it directly. He changes it, and there's a reason. It's not because he's misremembering it. It's because he's trying to change the focus on it. When Isaiah says, how beautiful upon the mountain are the feet, he is trying to draw your attention to the beauty, the aesthetic and spiritual beauty of freedom that is being proclaimed. But... When Nahum does it, he doesn't say how beautiful, he says, behold, Hebrew word, hene. And it's an, in, it's an interjection, it's, um, it's an emphatic look. In fact, all through Revelation, it repeatedly says, behold, 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 because John is thinking like a Jew, saying, hene, hene, hene. And that term is meant to draw your attention, almost like you would, and we wouldn't dare do this, but I certainly had it happen to me with my military dad. When I'm doing something else, he's like, look, smack me in the head, look, pay attention, right? My, don't call the police on my dad. He's dead anyway. But that's what it is. It's an, he's emphatic. He's saying, look, take your eyes off of your imagined world, the one that the world is telling you is real, and look at what I'm telling you, because that is the real one. And when he does it, what is he saying directly? He's saying, behold, look, and he's saying it's an invitation to believe, verse 12, that although Assyria appears full, they're, being cut, they're going to be cut down. Although you have been afflicted, you'll be afflicted no more. Although you have been in chains, you won't be. And if you don't think that's the imagination that you're being called to exercise, you don't know what he's talking about. He is saying, yes, they look like they're succeeding, but they're not. You need to exercise your imagination. You need to trust that what I'm saying is true. And although they look like they're winning, they're losing. 
although you only can imagine me afflicting you, there's another deep conversation. God doesn't say a series afflicting you. God says he's done it. God is accountable for the atrocities done to Israel by Assyria. Somehow, that's what he's saying. I'm afflicting you, but I won't do it anymore. Then he, also, then he goes on and says, and you've had yoke across your shoulders and shackles on your feet, and I will break them from you. Do you have the imagination? It's an invitation. Behold, I invite you. Do you believe this? Does your, is your imagination such that you can believe something that I am telling you above what you see? And this is entirely what he's getting at. And here's what is interesting as well. Notice what he says at the very end of that verse. Do I have uh, verse uh, 12 up there? There it is. Keep your feasts, O Judah. Fulfill your vows. Oh my goodness. He is speaking in the future tense saying, behold, good news is coming. So in other words, look, it's on its way. But then he speaks in the present tense. Although it's not here yet, you must live as if it's here. Although you're not free yet from Assyria, you must keep your feasts. That's in the present tense. Keep your feasts. You are a person whose mind has been baptized by God. You now see the world as God says it is, not as the world does. So although the world is saying you're enslaved, you keep your feasts. Don't listen. You live as if the king has already come. Fulfill your vows. Do it all because it's already happened. Now here's the great challenge. Babylon was coming. Assyria is destroyed in 612 B.C., by the Babylonian and Medes. They come and destroy it. But by 586, so we're talking, what, 14, 12, 26 years later, the Babylonians just come and destroy Judah anyway. So what good news is that? Right? Is that really good news? What's happening here? Because it's just going to happen time and again, time and again. And so Israel is being told here to trust God, but here's what they, they had, right? Nahum is calling Israel to trust that God would come you and I, by grace of God, live on this side of the resurrection, and we are being asked to, tr- to know that he has come, and because he has come, he will come again. So we have a different sort of thing to look at, but it's very similar, it's very connected, because faith, you see, do you know what good news means? I mean, pastors have done this for years, so I'm not breaking any ground here, but the word good news, when it was used in ancient Rome, wasn't, it always meant a finished work. So a herald would come into the city, and say, good news, Evangelion, good news. Caesar has defeated the Gauls. It was good news because it was finished. What he wouldn't say is, good news, we tried, but the Gauls are coming, so prepare for murder and rape, it's coming. That's not good news. Good news was only declared, you only said, Evangelion, good news, only when the work was finished and your freedom and your peace was secured. So, When Paul then will quote Isaiah and Nahum later, and he speaks about the gospel having been finished, that Christ has overcome for your sake, that in Christ God is fulfilling the promises of the Old Testament to save his people from their real enemy, which is sin, that would keep all the Babylons from coming back, and that anyone who trusts that he died in their place would receive the reward that he deserved for his perfect obedience. That gospel is what we are then called to say, it's true. And because he has come, we know he will come again. Because if I order something on Facebook Marketplace and I pay you in advance for it, you know I'm going to come because I've already paid for it. I'm not going to leave you hanging. And that's a very modern example. But Christ has already paid for you. If you're a Christian, he's already paid for you, so he will return. And until he returns, he's saying, live as if I have returned. Because for your sake, in your heart, I have returned. 
Where is the kingdom of God? It's where Christ is honored as king. And you and I, who have Christ in us, we live in the kingdom of God and reveal it and and model it in this world as we live according to his rule and not the world's. When our imaginations are such that they are ruled by his story and not ours. And here, C.S. Lewis, in The Weight of Glory, it's a wonderful, many people think it's his best work. It's a short essay. He says, he talks about the gospel this way. Do you think I'm trying to weave a spell? Perhaps I am. But remember your fairy tales. Spells are used for breaking enchantments as well as for inducing them. And you and I have the need, need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a hundred years. Almost our whole education has been directed to silencing this shy, persistent inner voice. Almost all of our modern philosophies have been devised to convince us that the good of man is to be found on this earth. The whole system, and I, listen, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, the Bible is very clear. Humanity is bent against God, all of it. And anything that is not for God is trying to convince us that the world and your peace and your joy and your satisfaction can be found here on this earth rather than in Christ. It's a lie. And so we need the most powerful possible counterspell. If the story of the world is attractive and beautiful, the sirens call, then what we need to offset it is an incredibly more powerful, more beautiful, more winsome story that will destroy it and displace it and become the seed of our hearts. That's the story we now see ourselves through. And Kevin Van Hooser, a great theologian who's out there, says, disciples need imagination to dwell, indwell the story of Christ, to see, taste, and feel the risen one in our midst. Because as Simon was re- praying for people in our church that are struggling and dying and hurting, how do you see Christ? Only through the imagination, because all the evidence here says he doesn't love you. Everything says he doesn't care. Why would he do this to us? I mean, oh my goodness, I was watching a show this week, and I get frustrated watching shows that are not by Christians, because when they bring Christianity into it, their theology is so bad, I just get angry. I'm like, no! And one guy is complaining about the suffering of the world. And listen, the world is horribly filled with suffering. But, they, but the world has no idea. They cannot conceive that suffering can be redemptive. Because it's only the story of the cross that says suffering can bring about salvation. And as Christians, you then become countercultural because the story that dominates you in suffering, and listen to these people that Simon's praying for, I assure you, I've been with many of them on, on, in hospitals and around them, they are suffering as Christians. They see that their suffering is for their glory and for Christ's glory, not out of anger. You don't see that at the deathbeds of people who aren't Christians. You see bitterness oftentimes, you see anger, you see disillusion, but you don't often see the suffering of saying this is good and I'm learning more about my God and myself through this suffering. So the gospel changes our hearts and frees our imagination to see the gospel and how it can renew our lives, our communities, and our workplaces. If you're working in the, and we do faith and work class, we'll be starting in September, it's difficult to see how your work in a sinful workplace can be of any value to God. How? But the gospel gives you this imagination. It changes it to say, gosh, how do I bring? Like, there's a way to do it. And the gospel alone will do that. So if you're a Christian, how do you offset, stay away from falling asleep like Israel had the chance of doing there? Spend more time in the word than in the world. Please do not quote Tucker Carlson to me more than you quote scripture. Listen, if it's, it's simple. If your diet is good, you're going to be healthy. If your diet is bad, you can lie as much as you want, but the heart attack's coming. That's it. Spend time in scripture. Friends, it's God's word. 
We have to spend time in it. The world is never stopping to say what the world... It's never stopping trying to indoctrinate you. It doesn't matter if it's the Barbie movie or CNN. It's always trying to sell you the idea of something that's going on in the world. And if that's your main diet, it's going to be very difficult for you to maintain hope and your faith. Spend time in Christ, Christians, please. Skeptics, listen, if you're a skeptic, I was there. You have believed the lie that the next phase of your life will make you happy. When you were a kid, you wanted to be an adult. When you're an adult, you want to get married. When you're married, you want to have kids. When you have kids, you want the kids out of the house. <laughs> I'm in that stage right now. No, I'm joking. And when, and when the kids are out of the house, then what do you want? I want to be happy in my retirement. And then this is what I'm going to tell you. No matter what stage you're in in that life, talk to somebody who's in the next stage you're going for, and you're going to find out they're just waiting for their next stage because the next stage does not help you. The, the mountain, the, you just keep pushing. It's like the snooze button on life, right? I'll be happy with five more minutes. Next stage, next stage. When I can drive, when I'm at college, when I've got a girlfriend, when I've got a husband. It doesn't work. You can disagree. You can disagree with history's lessons that all of humanity has said this, rich and poor alike, but if you do, you're a fool. I'm sorry. It's a lie. The lie is simply not true. Let Christ shape your imagination. Let Christ fill your imagination what life is like, what you should be striving for. And you're going to find that life will continue to be hard. But there's always going to be hope. There's always going to be, you're always going to be seeing how it's shaping you and the purpose in it, rather than thinking it's against you. The world's against me. The world's against me. Christ alone. Seek him while he may be found. It's the greatest hope. This book of Nahum, yes, it's harsh, but it's loaded with hope. Look, behold, behold the feet of him who brings good news. Christ's feet. Let's pray. Thank you.